I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, emptied camps but no empty promises. A Métis city councillor who voted against declaring homelessness an emergency in Edmonton says his family is personally affected by the dire situation on the street. But he says he refuses to back another hollow promise. Urgent care. After a new deal is struck to get medicine to Israeli hostages in Gaza, the head of a medical team supporting the hostages and their families tells us the best treatment will be to bring them home. The murder of a woman outside an elementary school in Calgary is another reminder of how prevalent intimate partner abuse is. An advocate says a new law and a new understanding of what we all need to do to intervene sooner would help save lives. Claws and effect. A cyclist who was badly injured by a speeding driver during a charity bike ride more than five years ago tells us she's still locked in a battle with her own insurance company. Setting the record straight, a reporter goes deep inside the Guinness World Record controversy that shocked the world. You know, the one about Bobby, the world's oldest dog. That journalist will tell us about what he uncovered and why he wanted to uncover it in the first place. And no small wonder. When a moose escaped from an Alaska Wildlife Center, it sent his caregiver into a panic, especially since it was hunting season. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that never shoots the bull. Edmonton has declared a homelessness emergency, and now Alberta is stepping in with a plan. My department today will be opening up a new support and navigation centre located at the CARES Centre here in Edmonton immediately. I want to be very clear that this support and navigation centre is not designed to replace the considerable support and emergency shelter system that is already in place in Edmonton, but to bring all that support system uh, together to provide wraparound services to individuals coming out of encampments. Alberta Social Services Minister Jason Nixon announcing a new triage system and support center for those displaced from Edmonton encampments. It follows two days of sometimes intense debate at City Council. As you heard on this show, the chamber group heated on Monday as members of the public voiced their frustration at the situation in the city after eight encampments were torn down and the temperatures plummeted. Aaron Paquette chaired both those meetings. He's an Edmonton city councillor and he voted against the emergency declaration. We reached him in Edmonton. Councillor Paquette, from where you sit, how will this new provincial plan help the most vulnerable people in your city? Yeah, it's actually quite heartening. It's something that uh, the city of Edmonton has been asking for, for a coordination of services and a way to help people who are homeless or in encampments to connect with services because uh, by the very nature of encampments, the population uh, is transient. And if there is work being done, oftentimes if someone moves or the 
encampment gets uh, moved due to cleaning, um, we lose that connection. So to have that sort of one-stop shop is really, really positive. The only concern would be that uh, there is a distrust among uh, a lot of our homeless population, 55 to 60% of them are Indigenous, uh, with institutions. But I have heard that they're going to be having uh, other Indigenous folks who are hired or cookums and elders and things like that uh, to help people uh, build that trust that this is actually going to be beneficial rather than harmful. And, and that trust and the goal, as I understand it, is to ultimately you know, give people options of where they can go next potentially to shelters. But as we heard the police chief there say just today, that looking back at the coldest night of the year, which just happened a few days ago there, shelter occupancy in Edmonton was only at 74%. So people are choosing, and we've heard this in other cities as well, people don't want to be in the shelters because they don't feel safe there for a number of reasons. So is is it realistic to expect that people will actually take the province up on what it is offering here? Well, it's an excellent question, and it's why a few years ago the city of Edmonton drafted emergency shelter minimum standards, because when folks are choosing to sleep in minus 40 weather, rather than go to a shelter, that gives you an indication that something has to be done. So what I've heard is that uh, they're going to allow partners to go to shelters together rather than being separated. Um, they'll allow people to bring their, their dog to a shelter and uh, we've also uh, heard that for Indigenous folks who would like a more Indigenous-led approach, um, th that is an option for them as well. It took a lot of time to get to this point, and this, the problem certainly is not completely resolved now, but also a lot of tense conversations and, and meetings at Council, as you know, because you, you were there. But in terms of declaring an emergency in Edmonton, you voted against that. Why? I did, uh, because we know that it's an emergency. But for an official body like a city council to declare an emergency, it also means that we are committing to end that emergency. And I did not see that commitment um, in the public mind because all of these uh, horrible issues and heartbreaking issues are happening in our streets, that it's the local government that is responsible. But in the Constitution and uh, every province's own legislation, it is the province that is primarily responsible for this. When we, as a municipality, declare this, we are saying we are taking responsibility. And unfortunately, we simply do not have the budget or the tools to do that effectively. And so I was very concerned about letting other orders of government off the hook um, as far as pressure and politically and Edmonton taking on that when we can't possibly hope to deliver on our own. Earlier this week, we spoke with volunteer Judith Gale, um, Monday night, in fact. Here's a little bit of what she said during that conversation. They could tell us today that they will house each and every brother in on the street tonight, right today, right now. We know where everybody is on the street. They're not hiding. They're out there in plain view. We can quite easily pick them up and house them in a good way. It's very personal for her, uh, and as you said in the meetings, it's personal for you and your family as well. That's right. Uh, we have lost people uh, to the streets. 
we have uh, you know tr- generational trauma in my family. I am indigenous, and we even lost someone over right before Christmas over the break. And uh, well, yeah, thank you for that. And so we are very aware of this impact. And one of my concerns about declaring this emergency for the indigenous population who is there is that. They have heard these kinds of promises over and over again. Help is on the way. Well, in this case, declaring an emergency did not mean that help was on the way. And so it is a broken promise yet again. And I was not going to vote for something that would put me in the position of breaking a promise to a community that has suffered so greatly. Judith Gale also mentioned one other specific thing. You know, she pointed to implementing immediate emergency measures uh, along the lines of what we saw in the Northwest Territories this past summer for people fleeing the fires, that an evacuee center was was built and set up in the city very quickly. What would you say to her? Why can't that happen? Well, what you need is a declaration of a local state of emergency, which grants a government extraordinary powers and the ability to marshal resources. And Why didn't they do that? Why wasn't that up for a vote? Well, I asked about that behind the scenes, and there was not a will to do that. And uh, one of the factors was that there are many elements that go into declaring a local state of emergency that may not have been fulfilled, and therefore we would not receive the provincial and federal help that would be required in such a declaration. For the people who are out in the cold today in your city still, what is your message to them? To the people who are cold in the city right now, my message to them is that these are failures of the institution. And a lot of people will want to say that it's failures of the individual, but no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I want to live on the streets. You know, in our streets, we have over 80 youth from five years old and up. This is not their fault. This is a systemic problem. And those who are governors have to step up across all orders of government to solve this and do it rapidly. At the city of Edmonton, we are ready and waiting and imploring the federal government and the provincial government to step up even more. Councillor Paquette, thank you. Thank you very much for covering this. Aaron Paquette is an Edmonton city councillor. We reached him in Edmonton. Any life lost to domestic violence is a tragedy. When it happens first thing in the morning near a school, it's especially shocking. Yesterday, a woman in Calgary was killed by her estranged husband outside an elementary school. Later, his body was found nearby. CBC News looked at court records that showed the couple were in the process of a divorce. The killer was facing domestic violence charges, and he had been charged twice with violating no-contact orders. We're not identifying the couple to protect the identity of their three daughters. Here's Scott Nielsen of the Calgary Police Service. Well, I mean, it's, it's terrible, really, right? I mean, here we have a situation where people had done everything right. They've engaged the police. Um, we've engaged them with services, support, court support, 
safety planning in the whole nine yards and to have something like this happen in a school in front of a school obviously is, is horrible. Andrea Silverstone is the head of the Alberta Domestic Violence Support and Prevention Group, SAGES. We reached her in Calgary. Andrea, what does it say to you that this woman, as we heard police say, did everything people in these situations are advised to do, but she still wasn't safe? I think that for me, of course, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for the family. It's heartbreaking for the bystanders. Um, And I think that for me, what it brings to mind is what can we be doing both from a prevention perspective so nobody ever finds themselves in a situation like this and what can we be doing in terms of beefing up our legislation in Canada? What is at the top of of your list? Is it is it Bill C-332, that private member's bill that talks about coercive control? Absolutely. I think that um, it's really important that there's an additional tool in the toolbox of the justice system and I think that coercive control is a great one. I think that it helps to identify issues of a pattern of behavior that controls individuals and makes them unsafe and possibly can even act as an intervention upstream of uh, something as horrific as what happened. How would it have have helped in this case? Because all of the the necessary conversations had happened with police, it sounds like the, the orders were in place. It wasn't a secret that this was a serious concern. So I can't talk exactly to this case, but what I can say is that coercive control is the identification of a pattern of behaviors that makes someone fearful for themselves and that if they don't follow whatever the abuser is telling them to do, that there's going to be serious and severe ramifications. So they stop making decisions in their own best interest. And I think if we're able to criminalize that, it allows for the justice system, as well as um, people like myself who work as a service provider, to go in even earlier and help people, one, to identify that they're being abused, let their friends and family know that they're being abused and that they're in a coercively controlling situation, and possibly even give the police tools to intervene earlier because they're able to identify behaviors before it gets to a broken bone or a black eye. What is it like for you personally as someone who does this work when a case like this comes up, even if you didn't know the person at the heart of it? So, of course, I'm curious what we all could have done better. I'm also curious about how we as a society can stop course of control and domestic abuse from existing in the first place. What are the prevention pieces that we need to be putting in place so that no one ever experiences domestic abuse or if they experience it, they're getting support at the beginning, not when things escalate to the point that they've had to call the police. One of the things that we know is that most people who experience domestic abuse, don't ever call a service provider. That's only about 35% of people. Most of them just tell a friend or family member. And how that friend or family member responds totally determines their trajectory of seeking help going into the future. And so when I see something like this and I hear about something like this, I wonder about how we can be better at teaching ourselves as a society to recognize domestic violence and respond to it. So it's not just what what the person at the heart of this who's dealing with this should be doing and saying it's what those around them should be doing and saying. What is your advice to people who have family members who are in this this situation or friends and don't know what to say? So I think first and foremost, I would say that we all know how to be good carers. We always ask our friends and family, how are you doing and are you okay? But somehow when it comes to the issue of domestic abuse, we think it's not our role. 
And so I think that to remind ourselves that it never hurts to say to somebody, are you okay? I'm worried about you. And then the second thing is, is we say just, for example, has a program called Real Talk that also is a toolkit and information. All you have to do is make a call to our agency or go to the website and you can find out about where you can and how you can help your friend or family member, which might even mean going to an appointment with them to see a social worker or to see a service provider. It might just be offering them an ear to listen to what's going on as they're trying to make decisions about how to keep themselves and their families safe. Intimate partner violence is certainly a a problem right across the country, but in Alberta, there are some of the highest rates of domestic violence. Have you been able to understand why that might be, why that is? So I have some theories about it, and there are some, there's been some research done. I think that part of it is the rates of domestic violence are often very tied into the economy. And in Alberta, we have a boom-bust economy, which I think affects our rates of domestic abuse. We also know that domestic abuse is sometimes tied into women's role in society. And we know that in Alberta, that there are not as many women who are working outside of the home as there are in other places in Canada, which also might be a factor towards it. And then I think that values, attitudes, and beliefs contribute towards it, as well as resources that are available to people who are experiencing it. So quite a bit of Alberta is rural and remote, and it's sometimes harder to get access to resources when you're rural and remote. How close are we to seeing that that coercive control law passed in this country? So this is the second time that a law of this kind has come to the House of Commons. It happened in the last government as well. It's gone through its first reading. It's on its second reading. Um, My understanding is it has strong support from most of the parties, I believe, with the exception of the Bloc Québécois. So I feel hopeful that it will keep moving forward. And I also feel hopeful that if it doesn't happen right now, it'll happen in the not-so-distant future. Do women and and others in this situation have that kind of time? The answer is is obviously not, because domestic violence is at, at epidemic levels. I think that we are in an epidemic situation. I think that there are parts of government that have recognized that, but I think that we do need to speed up what we're doing and pass that course of control legislation in Canada. Andrea, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for covering this issue. And every time the media talks about it, it helps people know that help is available. And so thank you for being part of the discourse. Thank you. Andrea Silverstone is the head of the domestic violence support group, SAGES. She was in Calgary. Pet owners will know that sinking feeling when you realize your pet has gotten out and is on the loose. That's exactly what happened to Steve Kroschel when a moose escaped his wildlife center in Haines, Alaska. The moose, Duck Moses, was gone for months until recently. Well, I'm glad that moose came back. I mean, he's he's sitting out here bedded down and happy as a clam. He's uh, uh, just... I, I just, I still can't believe my eyes when I go outside. <laughs> well, tell me the story of the, the moose the, who went wandering about, I guess. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, uh, it was in September, just a couple of days before the Alaska moose hunting season, and he was legal, you know, it was a spike. And uh, there was an open door. We had some tourists here, and he walked out, and he walked across the road into the swamp, never to be seen again. And I reported it to the state, and they said, you've got 48 hours to find your moose, otherwise it's fair game for the hunters. 
Oh, no. <laughs> so, like, is that all they said to you? <laughs> Pretty much. That must have worried you a bit. Worried me, yeah. I mean, because I, well, I called with my pile, a loudspeaker, you know, I called. I guess he's got a, he comes to a special call. Mama, mama. That echoed through the valley. I know that people that heard that probably thought, what is special smoking now? <laughs> but anyway, the moose never came back, and I thought, oh, boy, and I'd hear gunshots during the hunting season, and I thought, oh, that must be Duck Moses. You know, it just broke my heart, and then I thought, well, if he survived that, will he come back? And it just uh, it just broke my heart. But then, do you want to hear what happened? Yes, please tell me. So I had a snowmobile trail in the back here of the property. It's about 60 acres. You know, I've got other animals here at this wildlife park, you know, wolverines, wolves, lynx, etc. And I had this snowmobile trail that was on this ridge, and, it's, and I can see, uh, you know, from my kitchen window across the swamp where that moose used to live. And I was making coffee, looking out, and here comes this moose in the distance walking on that snowmobile trail. And I thought, ah, oh, come on now. So I opened the window of the kitchen, and I called out, Mama! And that moose was, you know, kind of sauntering along, and it stopped. And it looked straight across that swamp towards me. I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Nobody will believe this. Anyway, I got up on the snowmobile trail. He trotted over, and he was just wanting to nudge me like, it was like Lassie licking my face. Steve Kroschel owns the Kroschel Wildlife Center in Haines, Alaska. He was speaking with Leonard Linklater, host of CBC Yukon's Midday Cafe. In the fall, Bobby, the Portuguese dog, died. But Bobby was no ordinary dog. According to Guinness World Records, at the time of his death, Bobby was both the world's oldest living dog and the oldest dog ever. He was allegedly 31 years old. That's more than 200 years old in human years. But in the months since his death, questions have persisted. Questions of whether Bobby could have really lived that many years. Some of those questions have come from Matt Reynolds. He's a senior reporter at Wired. We reached Mr. Reynolds in London. Matt, you wrote in your initial investigation back in December, quote, someone needed to establish the truth about the oldest dog to ever have lived. That someone, it turned out, was me. Why did you want to take on this fight? Because I just don't like people having any fun. Um, no, I think it's because you see a lot of these viral news stories, yeah. which are cute, and I kind of love them, and, and you know they kind of go go crazy on, on the internet. But what I often find, I've done a couple of stories like this in the past, that if you dig around the details, you find that actually they, they fall apart quite quickly. And there was something about this this famous dog that just... Yeah, got my suspicions immediately raised. And then so you started digging, doing journalistic research and speaking to to vets around the world and experts, including here in Canada. And they had some questions, too, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So, so vets had a, quite quite a lot of questions. It turns out. I, I think on a really basic level, most of the super old dogs that are around now are small breeds. They're Chihuahuas, like Toy Fox Terriers, things like that. Mm-hmm. So vets were quite suspicious because Bobby is a kind of medium large dog. So that was a red flag. Um, also that um 31 is a lot older than most of the other dogs around at the moment they're usually 24 25 these super old dogs so that was a red flag and then yeah the canadian expert i i spoke to um had lots of questions around uh, the coat color um because there's there's some kind of theories on the internet that actually maybe the these photos of bobby weren't always the same dog some of his coat you know seemed to be changing actually it's really difficult to get to the bottom of that but certainly that was like one of the theories that people had that maybe this wasn't the same dog in the in these photos that people were seeing and that was sheila schmutz an emeritus professor from the university of saskatchewan the owner bobby's owner would have had to provide documentation though right some sort of documentation so as you followed that paper trail what did you find yeah that's right so in the guinness article when guinness you know first gave bobby his record back in Uh, February 2023, it said that the verification came from a Portuguese government database called SIAC. And essentially, they, you know, just like a pet registration database, because it's a a legal requirement in in Portugal. Um, And I checked with the SIAC, and they said, yes, it's totally true that a dog called Bobby was registered back in July 2022. But they said that at the time, all that they heard was that the owner said that Bobby was 30 years old. He was born in 1992. They didn't provide any birth record. And what's more, SIAC told me that Guinness had actually never got in touch with them to check in on these details. Mm. So maybe if they had, they would have found out that actually this is kind of going on, um, you know, taking it on face value from the owner. Your reporting uh, has yielded some results so far. Guinness has suspended this title uh, altogether as it does its own investigation. What have they told you about what they're doing? yeah, so Guinness told me it, it suspended the record for the world's oldest living dog. So that's mm-hmm. what Bobby held um, until he died. But they've also suspended the record for the world's oldest dog ever, because Bobby also held the, the title for that. <laughs> and essentially, they told me that they're, they're pausing both these records until they're able to you know, maybe establish a better system for verifying these dogs' ages. Because, I mean, as you can kind of tell, it, it turns out that actually maybe what they're relying on so far just wasn't quite robust enough. So they're going through a verification process they're talking to bobby's owners they're talking to some of the other people that are involved with really old dogs and trying to figure out um you know is there a better way to work out these ages your reporting also revealed a reference to you know a a lobby as one person you interviewed uh that spoke about and and this this was someone who's on team bobby and thinks this is all nonsense And, and they're alleging that big dog food companies are smearing bobby's legacy yeah, it turns out that people get quite upset when you cast out on like, you know, cute old dogs. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I think Bobby is a lovely looking dog. I think he's really, really cute. Um, yeah. So so this this one person told me that they thought that this was because um, Bobby famously ate a diet of human foods. And they thought the big pet food probably wouldn't like that getting out there. And if, if if, you know, eating human food is actually the key to a extra long life. But I did check with some companies and they were like, there's definitely not a scandal around this. So I yeah. feel pretty confident around that. But I mean, <laughs> you can never rule it out, I suppose. It would be pretty difficult, I would say, unless you have records from, you know, the moment the dog was born to be able to prove something like this conclusively. No? What did your research find on that? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I talked to one vet um, and she said, you know, if a dog is under the age of one, it's quite easy to tell, are they six months? Are they two months? But once you get 
into you know an adult dog it's really difficult to say is a dog five years old are they three years old are they 10 years old but um one way that you you might be able to do it is certainly in the uk i'm not sure if this is the case everywhere but dogs have to be microchipped aged uh, before eight weeks and essentially if you can have a vet record from that moment or you know the first vet visit or whatever it might be and then provide some kind of continuity to show you know photos perhaps to show this is the same dog and you've lived with them however many years however many decades that hopefully would be a little bit kind of more robust yeah the truth of these things actually matters and figuring out a better way to do this hopefully makes people feel a bit more confident plus people that are into old dogs they really do care and some of the people i spoke to that had old dogs were like a bit upset that um their dog's record was kind of being besmirched by other dogs that didn't have as good record keeping and you kind of get this thing where people that you know really care about their records maybe worry about you know the respect people give that give the record essentially so it is good that guinness is kind of looking at this and I'm, i'm interested to see what standards it will require when it actually comes up with some um you know some yeah some standards hopefully they'll tell me about it in the meantime, though, mon Dieu, there is no dog that holds the oldest living dog record. Yeah, the crown is empty and also the <laughs> crown for the oldest ever dog. Yeah. So um, who knows what dog will come out of the woodwork to kind of fill this <laughs> fill this gap. Well, they better have their, their papers in order. <laughs> Matt, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Matt Reynolds is a senior writer at Wired. We reached him in London. In a statement to the Associated Press, Bobby's owner, Lionel Costa, defended the title. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. After more than 100 days in captivity, Israeli hostages in Gaza may soon have access to medication. Today, trucks carrying medicine and other humanitarian equipment crossed into the territory thanks to a new deal negotiated between Israel and Hamas by Qatar and France. The deal allows some humanitarian aid to be delivered to Palestinians in Gaza, along with the delivery of medications to the roughly 130 Israeli hostages still believed to be held there. Medicine that many, including Shai Venkert, believe is badly needed. Mr. Venkert's son, Omer, is one of the hostages. In December, he told As It Happens he's worried about his son's health. My son has a colitis disease. It's a chronic disease in the stomach. And to think that he's 60 days over there without any treatment and without medical aid in a stress situation, it's getting severe. And uh, he needs uh, medical attention, medical aid. Hagai Levine is a professor and the chairman for the medical team of the Hostage and Missing Families Forum, an advocacy group in Israel, and was involved in the deal. We reached him in Israel. 
Professor Levine, what will these medications mean for Amer Venkert and all of the remaining hostages? For Omer, it's very clear. He got specific medications that he needs. And, you know, I can only imagine what it means for him to be over 100 days without his drug for ulcerative colitis. And many, many health problems. Others need medications for diabetes, uh, for a lack of, uh, you know, thyroid function, uh, for Addison disease, etc., etc. And I really hope that the medication arrive to them and will be a light in the darkness. Do you have a, a recent status update on, on, you know, where exactly the medications are right now as we speak? Um, it's still in the process, and I hope that uh, we will have... Uh, a verification of the arrival of the medications to the hostages because we must have a proof in order to know that it's actually arrived to them. Is that part of the, the deal that you will be offered proof? And if so, what what is that going to look like for you? We got the promise that we will get a proof, but I don't know what the, the proof would be like. Given the volatility of the situation... Are you worried that the deal might fall apart before the medications get to the people who need them? Well, we have, you know, a phrase in Hebrew that blessed be the one that is always worried. So on the one hand, I'm always optimistic. On the other hand, I'm always worried. And of course, we all know the Murphy law. So let's see what will happen. I hope that they will get not only the medications, by the way, I don't know if it was published, but we also requested vitamins and painkillers and other drugs to all of them because all of them are at risk of being injured and having other problems related to captivity conditions. Um, so I hope that all of them, we get some kind of uh, sign of life from the outside and that we will get some kind of sign of life from them. And the, the roads that we establish with the uh, Frenchmen, with the Qatari to the Hamas, will help us in um, gaining mm-hmm. some way to bring them home back safely. Uh, because <laughs> I must tell you, the only way to keep their lives is to treat them in hospitals in Israel. Where is your hope level at, you know, compared to 40 days ago, for example? Does this deal give you more hope than you had before? We are in a roller coaster in this event, uh, but mostly going down and not up. Mm. Uh, it has been now more than 50 days since the release of uh, the other hostages and every day you know or almost every day we get uh, bad news of another hostage that was murdered i just visited today and uh, the family of yossi sharabi who were notified yossi was murdered and they still uh, are concerned about his brother eli sharabi and this reflects that they don't have time they simply don't have time so we are very concerned, and as a physician of the families, I see the impact on their health, on their mental health of this condition. And, you know, I urge uh, everyone, please do whatever you can and make a difference. You've been pushing for this for months. 
Why do you think this deal came together now? Well, I, I would actually ask, why didn't it happen earlier? Because, yes, I start working on it from the very first days mm-hmm. after the abduction, because it was clear to me as a public health physician that their life are at risk not only because they are in the hands of bloody terrorists who killed their uh, family members, uh, but also because they need medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we tried all the time through many roads to, to reach to them through the ICRC and through many different possibilities. Yes, obviously there was an interest here because for for every bag of uh, drugs for the hostage, many more were given to the Palestinians. It was Hamas' interest to, to bring the, the medications. To underline what you were saying there, in exchange for these deliveries as part of this deal, medicine and humanitarian aid is also going to Palestinians. I wonder if you feel that you would be at this point if you and the families were not advocating so strongly for this. I think it's very clear. And, you know, the President uh, Macron uh, acknowledged today uh, that it could not happen without the initiation of us. And I think that the families knows that without the communities that they created and the aid of thousands of volunteers all over the world and in Israel, they would not have not the release of some of the hostages and not the current uh, deal. So, yes, I am very proud to be a part of this outstanding uh, endeavor of the uh, hostages families. But we need solutions. We need to see how things are moving and not stay in place because freezing the situation is the worst for them. They don't have time. Dr. Levine, thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Hagai Levine is a professor and the chairman for the medical team of the Hostage and Missing Families Forum, an advocacy group in Israel. We reached him in Israel. More than five years ago, we brought you the story of a charity bike ride that turned tragic. A group of cyclists was riding around Lake Ontario for Pancreatic Cancer Canada in May of 2018 when one of them hit a pothole and fell. As the other cyclists tended to their friend on the side of the road, a van driver slowed down to give them space. But then a speeding car zipped past the van, swerved onto the side of the road and struck the cyclists. One cyclist, Jeff Ravaki, was killed. Another, Aaron Townley, was badly injured. We spoke to her father at the time. He helped organize the ride. Here's what he had to say. As I'm walking onto the scene, I hear Daddy from the side, and I went over, noticed my daughter for the first time, uh, obviously in quite a bit of distress, but her boyfriend was comforting her. I quickly assessed what was up. I could obviously tell she had a bad arm and everything, and she had a a contusion on her head and was bleeding, but I knew she'd be okay. That was Gore Townley talking to As It Happens in 2018. The speeding driver who hit his daughter was later found guilty of dangerous driving and sentenced to eight years in jail.
But for Ms. Townley, the story doesn't end there. We reached her in Calgary. Erin, how are you doing physically, mentally, five years on? (laughs) It's a a loaded question. Um, I mean, good days and bad days. Uh, The delay for resolution in the civil proceedings has certainly uh, prolonged my mental health recovery, I would say. So, uh, I mean, I'll never be 100% uh, where I was physically prior to the accident. And at this point, waiting for closure, waiting to move forward with my life, um, that's that's really hindering my, my ability to focus on the future. I ask because you, know, you had broken ribs, a fractured arm, a mild traumatic brain injury, and a collapsed lung at the time. The man who hit you, Robert Saunders, was convicted a few years ago, sentenced to jail time. So did you think when that case wrapped that you would still be litigating this in a different way, that you would still be entangled in all of this? I didn't. I truly thought that this was going to be done, that I was going to have that closure, that I was going to be able to to close this chapter of, of litigation and just focus on moving forward, focus on my life, on my family. And it's, it's incredibly disappointing that Almost six years later, I'm still here, and I'm still talking about this, and I'm still dwelling on this, and that it still consumes a large portion of my life. At the heart of this case is that that Robert Saunders did not have insurance, but your TD insurance contract includes a clause that allows you to make a claim against them if the person at fault isn't covered. What happened when you made that claim? I felt assured because I had an insurance policy that would protect me. and uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately... Um, That's not what it happened. has. It's proven more difficult than what I understood mm-hmm. the policy to be in the intention of the policy. The judge in the criminal case, as you mentioned, did find Saunders solely responsible for what happened. In this insurance case, though, the company names a list of people it believes may be liable. The group that organized the charity bike ride, the driver of the van who, who did the right thing and, and slowed down that day as well as Pancreatic Cancer Canada, the charity you were raising money for. It is also now trying to add two others to that list, Ontario's Transportation Ministry and your father, who was there that day. What does that list say to you? It's really disappointing. Um, I try to keep a pretty positive view of the world. I think that's the only way you can proceed after an accident like this when everything is taken from you. I try to believe in the best in, in people, um, I mean, we were on a charity bike ride raising funds for Pancreatic Cancer Canada. We were lawfully on the side of the road. The driver in front of Robert Saunders was held to be the standard of a reasonable driver in the criminal case. He was doing everything right. And and to see all of these people named and to see what feels to me like like legal games, trying to find even just 1% of liability and anyone else aside from the person who hit me and then Jeff. I, I'm i struggling. I'm really struggling yeah. with uh, many of these people who have been listed and obviously my father uh, yeah. who rode up onto the scene and who witnessed me covered in my own blood. It's it's distressing. I'm sorry to bring all this up again. How is your, your dad doing with all of this? Uh, I mean, we've we've talked about it. He doesn't he doesn't want to go into too much detail. I think he's mostly just focused on on how I'm doing, mm-hmm. but it's stressful. You know, it's it's hard for me to try to explain to my parents that you know it's not personal. 
it mm. is just trying to adhere to the law and and you know it's um but it, it it's, it's really hard to explain that yeah. uh, especially when i'm struggling with how this is an administration of justice we reached out to TD Insurance. They told us they could not comment on your case while it is ongoing. We also reached out to several experts in insurance law, and they've said the company is within its right to fight this claim and go after any third party it thinks may be liable. Uh, you are not accusing TD of, of breaking any rules or laws here, but you are a lawyer. So how do you feel about the way the system is working right now? Yeah, exactly. Well, like what they're doing is is perfectly legal. It's perfectly, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it reasonable just because this personally affects my life. Um, But I understand that everything that TD is doing is within the bounds and what they're entitled to do. I'm more concerned about the regulations um, that are in place and the legislation that allows third parties to be added almost six years after the initial injury, especially when those third parties were known at the time of the accident. Because I can't see settlement, I can't see resolution on the horizon. All I see is that this is going to consume years more of my life. How much are you entitled to under this claim? Do you have a number right now? And how would that help you at this point? I have a capped number. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think in my claim, I think I pled um, over $3 in damages. Mm -hmm. My insurance claim is capped um, based on my policy. Uh, and I mean, in terms in terms of how this money would help me, it would help put me in a position that I, I should have been in, but for this accident. Uh, the, the out-of-pocket expenses mm-hmm. I paid for treatment is, even with insurance, is, is astronomical. And to date, I mean, we haven't received a single settlement offer. I haven't even been offered a dollar. I just, I just want this over with. I just want to be done with it. I want to be able to move forward and, and start my life. Erin, I hope you get the answers you need. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and and for chatting. That was Erin Townley, a cyclist who was badly injured by a speeding car during a charity bike ride five years ago. For more on this story, go to cbc.ca slash AIH. By early March, if all goes to plan, Victoria Vaders will be able to look up at the sky and appreciate her achievement. The Memorial University student won't be able to see it up there, but the small satellite that her and her team have made will be in space. It's part of a larger Canadian Space Agency CUBE satellite initiative involving universities across the country. Victoria Vaders is a third-year mechanical engineering undergrad. We reached her in St. John's, Newfoundland. Is the date marked on your calendar, Victoria? Of course it is. I'm so excited. (laughs) We worked so hard. So the beginning of March is going to be a super exciting time for all of us here in St. John's. What do you think it's going to be like? I'm sure you look up at the sky a lot, given what you do, but to look up in the sky in March and know that your satellite is up there. It's going to be such an exciting feeling. I mean, we put so much work into this. And even now I'm driving home and I'm looking up at the sky and I'm like, man, 
just a couple months and something I contributed to myself and so many others is going to be up there, you know, providing really great data for us here on Earth. And yeah. we've put so much work into it. So it's, it's going to be super exciting to look up and know that you contributed something. Our listeners might be thinking when they hear satellite that it's this large structure, lots of panels. This is different. It's a cube satellite. What is it? What does it look like? Yeah, so there's a lot of different types of satellites. So I guess you're right. Traditionally, you think of, you know, the satellite being this massive thing, but that's not always the case. We have things called small satellites, which are, you know, a little bit smaller than most big ones. And then we have an even smaller type of satellite known as a CubeSat. So a CubeSat comes in a couple of different sizes. The most standard one is really no bigger than, you know, um, a carton of milk or a loaf of bread. The one we built was about 20 centimeters long, so it wasn't too big at all. It's relatively small, but just as powerful as, you know, any other satellite you may create. Um, these are smaller, so, you know, obviously less costly and more cost efficient. And, you know, they're pr- predominantly designed by university teams. A little bit smaller, a little bit easier to make, but yeah. still very, very efficient in collecting data. And what kind of data are, are you hoping that this one will, will provide? So for Killick 1, which is the one we designed out of house here at Memorial University in Newfoundland, we're hoping to measure some ocean parameters. So we're going to get some wave height data. Pretty much all of it is going to help us understand climate change and kind of the role that the ocean plays on these weather impacts. And, and, you know, we take that data and we provide it to researchers who are in this area and they analyze our data that we collected from the CubeSat to, you know, kind of do their own research. Why is it called Killick 1? Killick is actually an anchor. It's a type of anchor Mm -hmm. and funny, you know, my supervisor says this all the time. He was trying to figure out what to name this back in 2018 when the project started. And one of his co-workers came up and just said, let's just call it Killick, um, which is kind of funny when you think about calling a CubeSat an anchor, which it's not. But, you know, it's significant to Newfoundland. We have a very predominant ocean history here, mm-hmm. boating history. So we decided to go with Killick. Killick wanted is set to go up on a SpaceX mission. In March, as we said, yep. March 3rd, to be exact. Yep. What will launch day actually look and be like from your perspective? Oh, big party here on our end. <laughs> um, we're going to be sitting at Secor, which is the office where we've done so much work over the last couple of years on this CubeSat. And we're all going to be cheering from our from our screen. Super exciting watching that rocket, that rocket launch. And in space, in terms of the perspective from this CubeSat, you know, once the rocket gets up there, how does it do its work? So an astronaut will take the CubeSat, so take Killick 1, and they'll put it in a robotic arm, which is attached to the International Space Station. And then that robotic arm has the mechanism to actually launch it and throw it into orbit. So we'll get to watch that happen on video, on live stream, and that'll also be a super cool experience. How did you get involved initially in this project? Because its, it's students are involved, as, as you are, but, but others as well. Yep. So I've always loved space. Ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated and thrilled by it. Um, I'm actually doing a co-op program, so that's what my program is here. Um, and I applied. I saw this job posting, and I thought it was super interesting. I was like, man, like I love space. I think I would really enjoy that. I applied. I ended up getting the job. And the very first day, I sat down with my supervisor, and he laid out everything that needed to be done. And I was like, man, how am I going to figure this out? I went home and talked to my parents about it, and they were like, Victoria, it's not rocket science, but it quite literally <laughs> is rocket science. Um, but I got involved with the project. You know, I loved everything that I was learning about. It was all super fascinating, so cool to me, and such an exciting project to be a part of. So I worked on various different mechanical aspects my first work term. So that was about a year ago, January of 2023. And then that work term ended after four months, so in April. 
And I came back because I loved the project so much and wanted to continue with it and wanted to see, you know, it finish. And so I came back in September for a second work term, and we actually got to bring the CubeSat up to the Canadian Space Agency in November, and it passed inspection. It was all good to go. Was it a relief? Big day to exhale? Oh, definitely. <laughs> we had a... Uh, we had a couple of problems. We were getting a little bit nervous. Maybe we wouldn't be able to finish it on time, but I had a great team of really hardworking individuals. We spent so much time working on it. Um, we ended up getting it done, and we brought it up. We were like, we're not sure if it's going to pass inspection, but we're yeah. going to try anyways, and it ended up going perfectly. So it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, you don't want to miss a space agency deadline or fail yeah, one of their no. inspections, <laughs> for sure. So there's professors yeah, involved, not. also engineers at... Uh, a St. John's-based research and development firm known as Secor. How long is Killick One going to be functional? Uh, should last around a year. CubeSat lifetime varies, um, but normally you're looking at about one to two years, depending on the orbit. Once its lifetime's over, it'll burn back up in the atmosphere. You're already working uh, with the Canadian Space Agency, sort of, as part of this project. Is next stop uh, <laughs> next stop NASA? Yeah, oh, I hope so. <laughs> I would love to work for NASA, but uh, Canadian space, well, American space laws really are a bit strict. Um, but I would love to continue to work in aerospace. You know, we have a lot of great space companies in Canada. So I would just love to get the space sector kind of, you know, more going, more more improving in Canada and continue to get people involved because I feel like a lot of Canadians don't really know that we have our own space sector. So it's super cool to see students like myself actually get into it and get so excited with projects. It's cool to hear you talk about it too, Victoria. Thank you. No problem. Victoria Vaders is an engineering student at Memorial University in St. John's. That's where we reached her. For over a decade, the number of international students coming to Canada has been swiftly rising. But that could soon change. According to a new Radio-Canada report, the federal government is planning to limit the number of international students in provinces that accept more of those students than their housing stock can accommodate. The source specifically pointed to Ontario, British Columbia, and Nova Scotia as possible examples. But according to some, it will take more than a cap to address the issues facing international students. Jenny Francis is a geography instructor at a public college in B.C. who's just completed a three-year project looking at immigration, education, and employment pathways for international students in the province. We reached her in Vancouver. Jenny, as you've likely heard, Immigration Minister Mark Miller says the federal government is considering a cap on international students. Is that something you would support? I think it needs to be more focused than just a blanket cap. Um, I would prefer if the government looked more, although this might be provincial jurisdiction, if the government would look more at a cap on the proportion of international students at public post-secondary institutions. I'm not sure what control they have over private institutions, but um, for public, I think that would work better than just a a number. How would that work better? Um, Well, I'm just not sure that a number, I mean, the number could still be divided among schools that aren't providing services or schools that are basically 
you know, diploma mills. Um, so I think kind of more focused on each school. Case by case, you're yes. saying, rather than a blanket cap. What do you make of the yeah. – there, there's also this um, – they've also said that they're going to make sure that the students who are coming have more money in their bank accounts. It used to be 10000 It'll have to be just over 20000 now. Would that make a difference? I think it will make a difference. Um, I know there are some advocates that don't agree with that, um, but I think increasing the amount gives students and families a more realistic picture of what it actually costs to live in Canada. At the moment, a lot of students are coming without adequate funds or without any funds at all. They just kind of, you know, families just pass the $10,000 around from family to family. So then when students arrive here, um, they have to start working right away. Your research showed that the the majority of students were working, many were struggling. Only 28% of of surveyed Langara students said they had enough cash to meet their basic needs. Exactly. So that's one of the reasons that I do support the increase in the amount that students have to show when they get here. Of course, there's always going to be ways around that kind of thing. But, you know, coming here and thinking that you might be able to survive in Vancouver with $10,000 a year just isn't realistic. So then students have to start working right away. Um, and so there was the removal of the cap. And I do think that students should be able to work should be able to work more than twenty hours a week. Maybe thirty is reasonable, even forty. Um, but removing the cap entirely, like it is right now, so that students can work a hundred hours a week if they want to, that um, that I don't think was a good idea. So you get students, you know, working all night in a warehouse and then coming to class and just unable to even really keep awake, stay awake. You must see their their emotions in those moments. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of tears. It's really hard to be an instructor in this context. We kind of feel like we're caught in the middle between the students and the kind of post-secondary administrators that are bringing in Mm -hmm. students that may not be prepared academically. What are international students telling you about what draws them to your school, to Canada, and their expectations? Yeah, I think they expect it to be a lot to for life to be a lot easier than it is when they get here. So a lot of the students that come are quite young, so they're coming directly from high school, and it's always a jump to go from high school to post secondary. But if you're coming, you know, from perhaps a rural part of Punjab um, straight to a college here, then you might not be familiar with the expectations of post secondary. So that's really difficult. And then balancing work with that. Um, homesickness and loneliness, um, being away from family, all the pressures that are on students. You know, if your family has mortgaged their farm to send you here and gone into debt to a money lender, and you're only 20, um, that's a lot of pressure for a young person. What would you say to students who are listening overseas to this conversation and considering coming to a post-secondary institution in Canada? You know, we've reported on concerns about um, agents who are not reputable and that you can apply yourself and not use a a middleman, so to speak, in your application. But beyond that, what would you say to those students? Well, I would really encourage them to apply themselves and not waste their money on an agent. Um, But I would say to maintain education as your key focus. Like, unfortunately, this is the only stream through which um, kind of entry level or like low paid workers can come to Canada permanently, like with a permanent, with an option to remain permanently. But I don't think the classroom is the place for that to happen. So I would like students to come here who are 
genuine students who are genuinely focused on their education and want to learn, um, not just here to get a diploma as fast as they can and then move into the labor market, probably into a job that they could have got anyway without um, their diploma. We've talked about what you think the federal government and the provincial government could do. Just before we let you go, Jenny, what about the institutions themselves? Should they be doing more when these students are applying, however they're applying? Definitely. Definitely. Um, So first of all, they need to recruit students who are academically prepared to succeed in post-secondary and then therefore in the Canadian labour market. They need to end their reliance on agents whose focus is profit um, and promote self-application by prospective students. Um, I would love to see more data collected on student success and student outcomes, employment after graduation and more transparency of that data. They need to provide better services for international students, especially employment services and career counselling, which is not generally under the purview of post-secondary, but given the the demographic of students that we're bringing in and their goals, I think that's only fair. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would like them also to recruit from a wider variety of markets so that Um, I mean, I would like to see no one country contributing more than 10 or 20 percent of the student body. Instead, as it is, we have large numbers of people from one place, turns out to be Punjab. um, And I think everybody would be better served if the classrooms were more international rather than um, large groups from from one place. Jenny, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jenny Francis is a geography instructor at Langara College. She's just completed a three-year project looking at immigration, education, and employment pathways for international students in BC. We reached her in Vancouver. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also find our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.